there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. A lot of Edward Lear, a lot of Ogden Nash, a lot of Lewis Carroll's poetry. And at the moment, because I, I have a young son, a hell of a lot of Dr. Seuss. Uh, I don't have a shelf. I have a whole bookshelf, but it's a pretty massive bookshelf, actually, which I'd call my comfort. I'm a chronic rereader, and I, in some ways I prefer to reread a great book than try to read it. <laughs> That's the new ordinary one. It's nice that you mentioned Joyce Carol Oates because she's my absolute favourite. I, I love her so much. Reading is the sole means by which we slip involuntarily, often helplessly, into another's skin. Welcome to the Rights for Festivals podcast. I'm Pam from Rights for Women. And I'm Kel from Rights for Women. Together, we travel around regional New South Wales and beyond, recording writing festivals and turning them into podcasts so people just like you can listen to them. This season, we're proud to be presenting the Mudgee Readers Festival with sessions like comfort reading, stories in the landscape and interviews with authors like Kate Wilde and Laura Elizabeth Woolett. So grab your favourite beverage and let yourself get lost in the Mudgee Readers Festival. Just like being there. So excited to finally be able to bring the Mudgee Readers Festival to everyone, Pam. That was such a great festival to go to. I know. It feels like so long ago. It wasn't in reality, but um, it was a fantastic festival and the first one that you and I got to do together, which was lovely. And yeah, some really good sessions. And what have we got happening on the first session today? Well, the first one that we're going to bring to everyone is a session called Comfort Reading. Uh, this one was all about books that provide solace when we need it most. Uh, interesting topic, I thought. And, um, you know, the idea of books that we return to again and again. So it was a stellar panel with Chris Wamsley, Andrew K. Street, Laura Elizabeth Woollett and Inga Simpson. And they were sharing their stories about books that nourish them. Oh, so sorry I missed that one. There's so many conversations that can stem just off that topic. It was a great panel and, um, you know, the audience was, you know, really glued to it. There was lots of discussion afterwards and the authors mentioned so many books. Um, you know, it was great to hear it and I listened to it again yesterday before, you know, our broadcasting to the world and jotted down some of the titles, although it's more books to add to my pile, Kel. <laughs> well... Um, I'm going to have my pen and notebook at the ready listening to this one after what you've just said. And I've never really thought about the idea of the comfort book, though. Uh, that's a new concept to me. Have you? Yeah, no, it was a phrase I hadn't heard before. But then when they explained it, it sort of made sense. And it got me thinking, I guess I think I do have a few comfort books. I mean, I'm not a great big rereader because I have so many books I want to get through. And um, yeah, so maybe we can talk about that at the end. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I'll have a listen to what uh, all these wonderful authors are saying and think about what my comfort books might have been or whether I have any at all. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning for a look at comfort reading. I'm Jen Martin and I'm joined by four wonderful authors that I will introduce to you shortly and we'll have a discussion about the pleasures and solace of reading. Some of you may have been here for a panel last year when we discussed better living through books. And I like to think that this morning's session is a continuation of this theme and an exploration of why we read and the benefits of reading. We know there are lots of health benefits, um, lots of mental health benefits for reading as well. 
but we'll discuss that further with our authors. So let me introduce them. Andrew P. Street is an Adelaide-based journalist whose byline has appeared in just about every newspaper, magazine and website in the nation. And his most recent book is The Long and Winding Way to the Top, 50 or so songs that made Australia. And if any of you were at the um, Australian Rock Quiz last night, I bet you wish you'd read that book. Could you join me in welcoming Andrew P. Street? Thank you. And Chris Womersley is the author of four novels, short stories and poetry. His latest novel is The Ghoulishly Pleasing City of Crows, set in 17th century Provence. And Chris is a former radio journalist and has travelled extensively but now lives in Melbourne. Could you please join me in welcoming Chris? <laughs> and Laura Elizabeth Woolish is a writer also from Melbourne. In 2014, she published her debut novel, The Wood of Suicides. And in 2017, her short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and the Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. Her latest novel is the meticulously researched, intoxicating and elegant, beautiful revolutionary, inspired by Jim Jones's People's Temple. Laura. <laughs> And Inga Simpson is an Australian novelist and nature writer. Inga's first novel, Mr Wig, was shortlisted for the 2013 Indie Debut Book Award, and her 2014 novel, Nest, was longlisted for the 2015 Miles Franklin Award and the Stella Prize. And Inga's latest book is The Gorgeous Understory, a memoir about staying in one place, told through trees, inspired by a decade living in a southeast Queensland forest. Could you please join me in welcoming Inga? Great to have you all here to talk about comfort reading. This is a topic close to my heart, firstly because I'm a librarian and I help people find things to read every day, but also because I've always had a comfort shelf of books that I return to. So I would like to explore the idea of perhaps what comfort meaning uh, reading means to each of you. Um, Andrew, do you have any strong feelings? There are, there are a couple of things that I, I come back to time and time again. One big one is science. Like, I, I love reading science books because it, particularly when you're sort of feeling like if you pay attention to politics, that everything is horribly, horribly out of control. If you start reading about science, it's like, oh, no, no, there are rules. This is good. <laughs> I feel that there is some sanity here. And also, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut. I, every couple of years, I kind of just find myself reading everything sort of from player piano through to time quake and just going like, damn it, how does he do sentences? I do not understand. Do you remember how old you were when you first read Vonnegut? Uh, I'm pretty sure I was 16 yeah. and read, like, Cat's Cradle. I mean, I mean, it's such a classic, like, boy thing. It's, mm. it's like if you're a bookish boy, then you end up reading, like, Cat's Cradle, Catch-22, Catcher in the Wild. A lot of catching <laughs> happens <laughs> around about the, your mid-teens. So I'm pretty sure that was the first one and, and then it sort of spiralled out of control from there. And the excellent rereads, but we'll get to that later. Mm. We're going to talk about rereads. Chris, do you have any strong feelings about Yeah, I do. I re I'm a chronic rereader and I, in some ways I prefer to reread a great book than try to read it. <laughs> a new ordinary one often. So, yeah, I've had sort of phases through my life. I didn't do the Vonnegut thing as a teenager, but I did the Kerouac thing and I read a lot of <laughs> Kerouac. You know, again, it's a sort of a guy, you know, if you're a girl, you read 
monkey grip or something like that. And they're, they're kind of often they're books that are, if you read them as an adult, they're not very good. You know what I mean? <laughs> as an actual grown up. But uh, when you're sort of a bit younger, they. It's like listening to The Cure. When you listen to it as an adult, it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Although, yeah. <laughs> Although the Cure, I don't know, The Cure had some moments. But anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I read and reread a lot of Kerouac and Burroughs and that kind of stuff when I was younger. And then I've gone through a phase where I reread Marguerite Duras a lot my 20s. The, um, the Lover? The Lover's yeah. just sort of this perfect small novel, novella, pretty 25, 30,000 words. Um, and I still know the opening paragraph pretty much off by heart. Um, and although I've not read The Lover for a while. Uh, Good opportunity. Oh, one day I was already old. In the entrance of a public place, a man came up to me and said, everyone says you were beautiful when you were younger, but I prefer your face as it is now, ravaged. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Marguerite Duras for you. Very cheerful stuff, but yeah, beautiful sentence. You know, just yeah, amazing stuff. Um, I reread Wuthering Heights every so often. I reread Dickens. I've got a big crush on a series of novels. I was telling poor Inga about it last night. She's going to have to hear it again. <laughs> Called A Dance to the Music of Time. Has anyone ever heard of these? <laughs> Anthony Powell. Yeah, who's actually a Welsh writer. But he wrote a series of 12 novels called A Dance, The, the Dance, and uh, they follow the fortunes of a sort of a group of school friends from the 1920s through to the late 60s. Um, and I will often pick up The Dance every couple of months and read just a, a chapter or something. Um, it's very kind of English, very kind of funny in a droll way and incredibly wise, you know, it's narrated by a guy who's sort of a novelist, a stand-in for um, Anthony and... Um, I just find it really beautiful and comforting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's something about rereads because they're familiar and of the self. You know how sometimes you find a book that it's like it's been grown in a lab just for you and there's a group yeah. of scientists. And, who... you know, a book is, a, you know, <laughs> literature is something that never finishes saying what it has to say, you know. Some smart person <laughs> said that, much, so much smarter than me. So they're books you can kind of revisit and it also helps I have a terrible memory. Um, go, oh, that's right. <laughs> they destroy the ring after all. <laughs> well, what's the, there's a Seinfeld joke uh, when an episode where George wants to get his copy of Moby Dick back from an ex. And I remember getting very, very angry at the television because Jerry was saying, you know, once you've read a book, you don't need yeah. it again. And there was this thing, well, you know, the second time you read Moby Dick, Ahab and the whale become great friends. <laughs> I was like, you idiot! Laura, do you have a small but significant pile of books that mean comfort for you? Um, well, I guess I have a special attachment to the books that I discovered probably between the ages of, like, 15, 16 and 18 because that's the age where I'm like, I want to be a writer. Um, yeah. So those stories that I discovered at that time were just, like, what I was drawn to and made me feel like, you know, this is a thing I'd like to do. One of them, I actually reread it um, a couple of years ago, and I, I still enjoyed it, but um, I just saw it completely differently. It was um, The Beach by Alex Garland, because I, I read that at a young age, and all the characters seemed really cool. <laughs> but then um, rereading it, I'm like, oh, everyone's a jerk, and they're so young. <laughs> I think that was the point, um, and so I think I read it and got a totally different understanding of it, but I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and quite a similar book, actually, was um, 
The Secret History by Don oh. Chan. Oh, I love The Secret yeah, History. Yeah, yeah. And Have I, you reread it? I reread it about two weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think I've only read it, well, only like three times. But um, I, I, it's one of those books I'll just be like, oh, I want to read that description of this character. Yeah. And I read that, and if anyone doesn't know the story, I mean, it's pretty well known, but it's about a group of classics students in a college in Vermont, and I think it's in the 80s. Yeah. Um, it made me want to study Latin because I'm just like, I want to be like these people. <laughs> yeah, there's good aspirational reading, although they're not particularly nice people, are they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think The Beach and Secret History actually had a bit in common because they're both about, like, cliquish, pretentious people in their yeah. own ways. And, yeah. But that really appealed to me. And they were just really interesting stories, well told, I felt. I, I just sent a copy of the secret. That's why I reread it because my niece turned 16. I've been waiting to give her the secret history for her whole life, basically. She's like, 16, is that too young? Yeah. And I feel like if she doesn't like it, then we can't be friends anymore, frankly. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that as well. The, the giving of books <laughs> as a fractious um, point in time sometimes. Inga, what does comfort reading mean for you? Uh, I don't have a shelf. I have a whole bookshelf, and it's a pretty massive bookshelf, actually, which I'd call my comfort zone of the house, um, which is nature own. Mm. So, and a lot of the books are also mm. like lovely hardcovers editions as well. <laughs> um, of Thoreau's Walden or um, Annie Dillard's Teaching a Stone to Talk, you know, these sort of mm. books that are a writer's deep immersion in nature and then writing about it in beautiful sentences and paragraphs. So it's a combination of almost escapism, going to these different parts of the world, these sort of wild places, but then the writing too is so beautiful mm. to me. So it's both what is being described and the sentences themselves that are um, soothing me. Uh, and, yeah, I guess now I tend to go back and pull something out and read sections rather than the whole thing. Mm. But, yeah, there's a lot there to choose from. It depends on the mood or... Yeah, that's my, my comfort place. It's in a different room in the house, actually. It's yeah. to go now. You've got a special comfort reading oh, room. <laughs> I am so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> it's just where the shelving ended up and, you know, you get, like, decisions about... Um, no, 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 it was a down. deliberate decision. As yeah. I, no, right. I, I yeah. did my reading nook. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go downstairs to the comfort. Yeah. It's, your, it's your safe place, yes. So, yeah, I think we've established that for many, comfort reading can have a lot to do with nostalgia. Sometimes it can be aspirational. And then when you return to those books later, you, you realise the place that you were in and then the aspiration becomes nostalgia. Andrew, do you think you can also read for solace, like in times of despair, is reading a comfort? Oh, 100%. Mm. Um, at the risk of getting very, very personal very quickly, I know that we don't know each other well, but there was a, a period where I, I was... I was very sick and very de uh, depressed. I was in hospital for a little while. And when I came out, the... I just bought every book on physics that I had ever <laughs> wanted to read and just loud into it and I was just like right for the next two weeks I am not leaving the house I'm just going to read about physics and that was incredible this is going to sound very pretentious incredibly healing it, it was just aside from anything I was just carving out time and being like this this is going to be reading time I'm not going to bother with you know work or anything like that 
It, and it was lovely. It was really, it was a, a big moment for me as well. I think that's a good strategy as well because often when you do have a friend or a family member who's unwell and you're like, oh, you don't want to give them anything too heavy to read or emotional, but physics is abstract, mm -hmm. but it also contains such an enormous sense of wonder, I guess. Absolutely. And it was one of those things, I mean, I'm by no stretch a religious fellow, and so getting that kind of... I, I don't like using words like spirituality, but that kind of sense of awe and that sort of sense of interconnectedness, you know, when you're sort of going, you know, some, something as simple as, as rereading, say, Carl Sagan talking about the way that all of the elements in your body come from supernovas billions of, of years ago and, and thousands of light years away kind yeah. of thing and that, that way that all of, again, that, that the sense of order that comes from going like there are, a handful of rules, there are a handful of elements, and they behave in wonderfully unpredictable ways, it, but within very, very set parameters. There was there's something just kind of magical about that. And, and that Carl Sagan line of the human beings are the, the method by which the universe can know itself is sort of one, one of those things that hits me in the feels every time I, I go back to it. Yeah. Hits me right in the feels. <laughs> Twitter talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm nothing if not down with the kids. <laughs> and Chris, your latest novel, City of Crows, is it's it's deep. You could. Oh, well, I know. I'm oh, just I like. I mean, I I heard that you me mentioned Hieronymus Bosch yesterday. Oh, yeah, you know, it's yeah. teeming, it's yeah. grimy. Um, you could say the plague is perhaps yeah. its own character in this 17th century novel. Mm. Um, there's some you know, heavy stuff that goes down. When you're writing about such a tough time in history, do you find you read in the opposite direction? Not really. I mean, I, I tend to, with my reading... Like, when I wrote Cairo, for example, I'd read a lot of kind of coming-of-age stories and sequential, you know, Gatsby and Brideshead and things like that, that and maybe even the secret history that sort of help you get a... or help me get an idea on what other people have done in the loose framework of what I'm trying to do, I guess. But with City of Crows, it was... Um, no, it was mainly non-fiction and history, I guess, in order to... And, but I, and also the inspiration, if you like, or the, um, the sparks for it were more visual than anything else. I looked at a lot of art from kind of the 16th and 17th century, Bosch, obviously, and Bruegel and stuff like mm. that, to kind of get a mm. sense of... Well, obviously, some, also some basic stuff, like what people looked like. Because people look different, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about just sort of thinking about saying before about reading for solace and stuff, and I don't, like, I, yeah, it's, I, I don't think I would do that in the sense of feeling a certain way and thinking, oh, I have to read Philip Larkin. Oh, that would be a bad choice if you were feeling kind of mainly. <laughs> I was going to say. That's depressed. Um, but, yeah, my sort of, my reading is far more sort of scattergun in a sense. I mean, I do have an, I do have sort of organisational, loose organisational principles. I did read a lot of sequence novels for a long time, mm -hmm. for example, and I've hit on a Philip Roth kind of jag lately and things like that. So, I th you know, I think a really great book, like something like Moby Dick or something, you could probably read it, it, pick it up and read it in some whatever extreme mood you might be in and you'll find something in it, I reckon. Moby Dick feels like, to me, like the Bible or something in the sense that it kind of contains every possibility in there a bit. I feel like that a bit about Middlemarch by George Eliot yeah, okay. as well. But that was a book that I tried reading when I was 18. 
couldn't do. Yeah. Got divorced, tried again in my 30s, got it. <laughs> it all makes and, sense. And now it's a, yeah, and now it's a regular reread. But it's yeah. like, there's, yeah. And it's true, I think it is true that there are books that you probably shouldn't bother reading before you're 40 or something. You know what I mean? Like, because it's just... I mean, maybe I'm a particularly unsophisticated or un immature person, which is completely possible. But, yeah, something... They just sort of... Things pass you by. Mm. You know? mm. And, Laura, in Beautiful Revolutionary, you write um, very deeply about character and really get into um, some of the characters who were part of the um, People's Temple. Mm. And I've got a quote for you here by Joyce Carol Oates, which for me encapsulates why you read to understand others. And I'll, I'll get you to talk about it a little bit. Um, reading is the sole means by which we slip involuntarily, often helplessly, into another's skin, another's voice, another's soul. And I can see that in your novel, that that's part of the experience of reading and, you know, being there. Is it something you have thought about in your own reading? Uh, yeah, definitely. And it, it's nice that you mentioned Joyce Carol Oates because she's my absolute mm. favourite. I, I love her so much. And actually, when I was writing Beautiful Revolutionary, one of the books I had on my table was um, Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates, which is her book about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yes. And it, it's fiction, and it spans from her birth until her death, basically. It just shows this woman and really gets into her skin, but also shows her from the outside, from men's perspectives and shows the sexism of the world that she lived through. And, um, yeah, you just got a sense of a full, like, flesh and blood person, but um, also her interiority as well. And I, I think that's what I really aspire to. Yeah. In the library world, we often talk about doorways into reading and everyone has a different doorway. Mm. Let's say you've got the same doorways, but some are larger than others. And one of the key ones is character. Some people read for character. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really special about being able to inhabit someone else. Even, even Wolf Hall, like when I read Wolf Hall yeah. and got into Thomas Cromwell's, you know, back of his head, wouldn't be possible mm. without that novel. Yeah. But Inga, I'm also interested in comfort and solace in nature. And the fact that a strong sense of place and a celebration of place is one of the ways that we ground ourselves. And I would love to hear about some of the nature writers that truly bring you comfort. Um, well, you know I've got this whole big shelf. I could just uh, take up all the time that we have with that. Uh, some in, probably I know about one in particular, which is uh, it was Rick Bass, was an American nature writer. Um, and when I was starting out, I was lucky enough to uh, go to Montana, Missoula, Montana, which reminds me a little bit of Mudgee, actually. Mm. It's surrounded by mountains, and they're bigger and covered in snow, but there's a river. There's a similar sort of structure to and feel to mm. it. <laughs> but uh, I did a nature writing workshop with him. I spent a week there going to class at the university and spending time with him. So I can hear his voice in my head when I read his books and... He's also done these, um, like, a little EP of some of his best short stories, mm. one of which is called The Canoeists, a recording to beautiful sort of uh, indie music, folk music. And so you can hear it like a bedtime story and listen to his voice. So he's a short story writer and a non-fiction writer, but there's not much difference between the fiction and non-fiction. I would call it all nature writing. And in fact, he said, they're all just stories. You know, he doesn't see a difference. 
Um, and, and everything he said in class, or every metaphor, was grounded in nature. So um, y'all got to watch out for the headwind of predictability. <laughs> um, or it really gravels me then when blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You just say, wow. Yeah. So he's someone, his writing and his way of living in the world is something I aspire to. He's an advocate as well as a writer, and that has kind of worn him out. Mm. But, yeah, I just find his sentences so beautiful and the Yak Valley in Montana such a almost fantastical place for me. But, so yeah. when you read his work now, I assume it takes you back there. It does. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. can see him and mm. yeah, hear his voice. Yeah. I almost read it in his voice. Mm. And the cadence, I mean, another doorway into reading is language, of course. And, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, I savoured every sentence, you know, every sentence was just perfect, you know, and you get that sense that people who talk like that, they love a book for its language, and Moby Dick is a great example. Mm -hmm. But also the cadences and the rhythms mm -hmm. of language, I think, as well, can be very comforting. Um, the rhythm, definitely. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I read his work out mm. loud. Mm. Um, use it in teaching workshops and things. Somehow mm. the sentence structure, the rhythm is mm. almost of nature, so mm. that, that's naturally comforting. Mm. And are any of you readers of poetry or plays? I feel like they, like, like the novella, like sometimes you can just pick up something small and slim. Yeah, yeah and... no, I read, a, yeah, I read a bit of poetry. I still love T.S. Eliot. I just think The Wasteland's kind of amazing, and, again, because of my short memory, I'm like, oh, yeah. Right. Madame Sassos just... When the thunder came. Yeah, <laughs> things like that. Um, I, yeah, that kind of slightly grandiose, slightly melodramatic thing I'm sort of a sucker for, really. I guess you could probably tell if I read Moby Dick and things like that. And I think, you know, I do think the economy of poetry... Like, not everything could be poetry, because if you're trying to make everything poetic, then nothing's poetic in a book, you know. So you need to kind of... It's one of the things, I guess, certainly I have learnt as a writer is that you know, sometimes you aspire to kind of a poetic tremble in your sentences and other times someone's just going to the fridge at night to get a glass of water. You know what I mean? Like or, or some plums. Or some plums, maybe, <laughs> yes, out of the icebox. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I sort of, I remember reading a book that was years ago that was very long and it was written by a poet, sort of an amateurish poet, and she tried to make everything kind of poetic and it was just like, oh, my God, kill me now. You know what I mean? So there's a sort of... You need to sort of be careful with that stuff, at, you know, as a sort of practitioner, I guess. But certainly, yeah, I read a bit of Larkin, Elliot, um, Emily Dickinson, of course, things like that. And the silence as well, the moments yeah. of stillness in poetry like Emily Dickinson's. And, you know, speaking of rhythm, like it's all about, you know, oh. that kind of thing of the ribbon, mm -hmm. ribbon, uh, rhythm and the line breaks and the sort of compression of metaphor and stuff that's, um, that I, it sort of appeals to me. Yeah, I, I feel very lowbrow by comparison. I, I read a lot of poetry, but it's very, very specific. It's a lot of Edward Lear, a lot of Ogden Nash, a lot of Lewis Carroll's poetry, and at the moment, because I, I have a young son, a hell of a lot of Dr Seuss. And, <laughs> and it's just... And the rhythms of those, like, particularly of Dr Seuss, it, once it's in your head, it's just like... It's wonderful. And, it's, and I, I read much more than he would like. <laughs> he, he gets bored with it far before I do. And I do think the Lorax is a great uh, template yeah. for the dystopian oh, fiction your son may read in the future. <laughs> Speaking of dystopia, Andrew, what about when 
the world's political climate, perhaps especially our current political climate, gets you down? Is there any escape? I, I think there's two, there's two things you can do, or there's certainly two things which, which I do. One, one is either I plunge right into it and start reading deeply about what horrific thing Trump has just done and, and how we're all going to die. Or I will go into something like Douglas Adams and just be like, this is absurd, but it's, it is as it has ever been. And satire has an important role to play sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we kind of... I've never been somebody who's been particularly enamoured of the idea that terrible politics makes for great satire, but it does. And we are living in a golden age of satire at the moment. I mean, um, I don't know if anybody saw James Colley, who's also at the, the festival, is a, an amazing comedy writer and a top-notch satirist. I think that there is a lot to laugh about and there is a lot to sort of take joy in, even if it's something as, as perhaps mean-spirited as watching Barnaby Joyce on yet another show calling for yet more privacy for the thing that he's selling. <laughs> and just sit there going, do you, not, do you not hear yourself? But, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for, for diving in, and there's, but there's an equal amount to be said for escaping as far as you can. Mm -hmm. OK, um, a question for Inga now, and I have a quote for you that you might want to explore. Thinking about your recent books, which have celebrated trees and your relationship with trees and... Um, your place in the bush or in the forest. I assume there's a lot of stillness or quiet moments there. So I've got this, I've got this Paul Oster quote, which is about reading um, as a way to find stillness. Reading was my escape and my comfort, my consolation, my stimulant of choice, reading for the pure pleasure of it, for the beautiful stillness that surrounds you when you hear an author's words reverberating in your head. Mm. That's a lovely quote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, stillness is the reason why I read, I think, to have that sense of stillness within yourself, being comfortable in your own skin or in the world, or maybe out of the world. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is a form of escapism, isn't it? But a soothing of the soul. I mean, for me, reading, reading a good book um, and being in a forest like that, that's about as good as it it gets for me in terms of stillness. And I guess if I'm trying to do anything in my writing, my own writing, is to bring it that stillness that I, you know, not always, but do know um, from having that experience of, of living inside a forest and of reading um, beautiful books and sometimes those two things together, I'm trying to bring that into my, my work, into my writing. And it means, you know, that I don't write blockbusters and, um, yeah, I'm not touring America on my worldwide best-selling tour, but... Um, and there are other reasons for that. But, yeah, I'm more interested in that stillness and place than I am in character. Mm. And, yeah, so... And particularly at this time in the world, um, you know, environmental crisis isn't putting it too strongly. Uh, it's hard to find that stillness, particularly in nature, you know, mm. without mm. also being alarmed and concerned. But, mm. yeah, the stillness is important to and, go on. And if you only write about the stillness, I suppose you miss part of the story. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't write about nature 
today without also addressing what is occurring, you know, the threats to that place or that feeling of stillness. Mm. Um, can you think of any works that do both very well, that are both a celebration of place? I remember reading an absolutely gorgeous book called The World Without Us by Alan Wiseman, oh, yeah, which is he's a journalist who looked at um, what would happen if people disappeared. Yeah. And he looks at places like the demilitarised zone between North and South Korea <laughs> and um, the rare breed of crane that has its only habitat there yeah. and the poor ornithologists who desperately want their nation to come back together but at the same time fear for those cranes as soon as the developers come yeah. in. And I find it very comforting. <laughs> but, That's a great story, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in that demilitarised zone is one of the, wild, you know, this crazy wild place and mm -hmm. kind of protection. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, there were some great anecdotes. And, yeah. and I love the idea of, um, I shouldn't say this out loud, particularly not in a podcast, but I kind of like the idea of a world without us. Mm. I feel like we don't deserve it. Uh, yeah, I mean, dystopian fiction, I think, or even when I was a kid, I loved World War II books. There was something about the idea that parents were gone when you're a kid, parents are gone. <laughs> kids are there. And with dystopian fiction, I don't know, it's just something, almost a chance to reset. Yeah, to yeah, do it yeah. Um, Most mm -hmm. night to writing addresses in some way, um, you know, it is inherently environmental. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even Thoreau, the, from the beginnings, nature writing was an antidote to sort of, mm -hmm. at that time, perceived to be rampant development, you know. Um, the, the West, the great forests of America were disappearing before Thoreau's eyes. So he was trying to find a literature that he... make up a literature he, he couldn't find in his reading to bring certain things together. But his endeavour was really to speak for nature, to speak up for nature and to share his wonder for it. So, I mean, most books do in some way. Mm -hmm. And in Australia too, in particular, nature writers are also trying to address this other issue of, well, how do you express your love and attachment for a particular bit of country, given the history of that place? So it is also quite political, and, um, as well as escapist at the same time. It's a retreat, mm -hmm. but a retreat to consider and find personal stillness, sometimes in order to, to act and address yeah, that, these bigger issues. That Joan Didion quote about a place belongs to the person who writes at the hardest, loves it, um, is actually complicated in yeah. <laughs> America or any colonial country. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Laura, when you started writing Beautiful Revolutionaries, when you started researching Jim Jones <coughs> and the People's Temple, that must have been a bit heavy. Like, it, there are some heavy moments mm -hmm. along the way. Similar to what I asked Chris, did you turn to other reading? during that time? Yeah, not really, because I think quite similar to Chris, I, I didn't really feel like escaping it because I was so obsessed with it and wanting to work on it. And I, I did read the heavy books actually about Jonestown and stuff, but to help my creative writing, I also read a lot of stuff which was only kind of a little bit related. Um, and there were all, all sorts of directions I could go in. So, like, I read... For instance, I've read a lot of books about race in America, but I also read things about drugs in the 1960s and um, Bobby Kennedy and all, all sorts of things that were going on. So um, just to get a sense of that world beyond People's Temple. 
Yeah, and also I, I read a lot about um, San Francisco in the 70s and, like, the gay scene. So there were all different directions I could go in. It wasn't just focusing on the darkness. Yeah. Does, does that kind of research help you feel control of your material? Yeah, for me it does. And it, it's just um, you want to know as much as you can about that world. It's about yeah. depth more than control. Like yeah. Trying to plumb the depths to, to get more on the page or more to the characters. Or... Yeah, it's a bit of that. And there's also, but there's, I mean, there's also a point where it's sort of like you could... A lot of these things, and I suspect it's the same with yours, Laura, that you could kind of just research forever. You know, <laughs> at one point you just got to go, OK, this, I've got to start actually writing this thing, <laughs> you know, and sort of jump in and kind of try and get the voice and, and whatever. Um, and, you know, again, bad memory. I would just sort of re re be re constantly rereading stuff as I was kind of writing it, just sort of looking for little clues. Um, I mean, I was sort of, you know, talking about historical fiction the other day and, or yesterday and, um, you know, that kind of thing of being wary of making a fetish of certain things and, you know, needs to be kind of feel organic in terms of, you know, what people are wearing or eating or, you know, the music they're listening to without kind of inserting stuff into it to kind of say... Hello, you know. Fact check. Yes, this is yeah. 1967 <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, so it's like when, when you're watching a film and there's like some really on the nose musical sting. It's like, yeah. yeah, you know, we're talking about the Vietnam War. So now, all along the Watchtower, yeah. by yeah. you know the Hendrix version, we're going to have that. Things like that, and it's like I mean, again, getting back to Philip Roth, like I just read American <clears throat> Pastoral, which is you know, a historical novel, it's set in the late 60s, early 70s, but there's no kind of historical kitsch in it. It's just people kind of living their lives, you know. There's no kind of musical track or anything like that ever, ever mentioned, I guess. But, um, yeah, it can be a bit endless research. Yeah. When we were talking about Vongart the other day, Andrew, you said that there was a passage that you read to your son when he was... When he was born, yes. yes. Would you like to share I, that? I, I, I would. I've, I pulled it up so I would not because, get as teary yeah. as I did at the time. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff. Rereading Vonnegut, there is so much beauty in it and it sort of helps you skip over the fact that he can't write women at all and there's weird racism throughout his books, which I think he would be horrified to be <laughs> confronted with, but... Um, of course, he's no longer with us, so it's not really an issue. But um, but this was from, um, God bless you, Mr Rosewater. And it's still one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And this, this was how I welcomed James to the planet. Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. At the outside, babies, you've got about 100 years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it. You've got to be kind. That's actually a great segue because I didn't know the passage that you were going to read, but I am interested in kindness and compassion. Um, some of the books I've read recently, some of you may have read Eleanor Oliphant, is completely fine. I thought that even though it's a troubling book, it's very comforting because of the deep kindness that the author writes. Um, Anne Patchett, I think, is a novelist who has deep compassion for her characters. Do you think of any particular authors when you think of kindness? Yeah, actually, I'm, because I spend so much time reading about horrible people, when I, when I do read that sort of thing, it stands out to me. And Marilyn Robinson's <laughs> yeah, series on yes. Gilead and Lila, and they were just, like, 
yeah, these people are like real people trying to be good and it, it definitely stood out to me. Yes, yeah. Uh, I don't know, I'm tempted to kind of think if you're going to try and write any sort of character, you've got to have, you've got to sort of love them really in a way, like, and even if it means loving them in the way that you might love a family member, which is to say they give you the shits and, or whatever, but you sort of have, you have to, you have to wish them well, you know. I mean, you know, even the evilest people on earth, whatever we kind of think they might be, kind of thought they were doing the right thing. Like, no one's the villain. No one thinks of themselves as the villain. Mm. No, even Hitler, he thought he was the good guy. You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, things like that. So it's, um, you have to, I think if you're going to kind of, attempt, endeavour to write any sort of character, let alone people who are maybe less kind of acceptable, morally or legally acceptable, um, you have to kind of try and see the world from their point of view. Mm. Mm. But then when you think about the worst characters in literature, like the judge and Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian yeah. or Austerlitz, you know, like there's some tough... I, yeah. It's tough, but I, I, I like what you're saying about you, you have to give them a chance. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think certainly the lo when I wrote The Low Road, which is my first book, it was sort of, an in, in some ways, it was an endeavour to make people who are sort of appalling, not lovable, because I don't think they'd ever be lovable, but sort of comprehensible, yeah. you know? Like, they're sort of, you know, people are all sort of the sum of our choices and, you know, the choices, many of those choices are those thrust upon us and stuff. And so it's sort of easy to be... Um, Judgmental, mm. and I think you know part of the project of literature would be to take some of that judgment out of mm. the world. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I've got one more quote um, for us, which is actually one from George Eliot, and I think this is about reading for beauty and wonder. Um, we can never give up longing and wishing while we are thoroughly alive. There are certain things we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger after them. And I feel like there are certain points where you just want to reset. And I think when I need to reset, that's I look for the good and the wonder and the beauty. Do you have any writing that is beauty for you? Do you go chasing that great dragon wonder? With physics, definitely. Yeah, yeah well, there's actually... There's, there's also... I, I, I'm not a big science fiction reader, but Ian Banks... He sort of had two streams of writing. One, one was his kind of literature, which he wrote as Ian Banks, and then there was his science fiction, which was Ian, a., uh, Ian N. Banks. There's not actually all that much air between them. But a lot of his science fiction, it's very, very sciencey. Like, it, you know, there, there's not kind of magical hand-waving sort of you know, hyperspace or anything like that. It's everything sort of conforms to the universe. But it's weirdly optimistic because, for I me, mean, for a start, it posits the fact that we're still alive in thousands and thousands of years, which, you know, is not something that seems plausible to me right now. And so seeing somebody else coming up with, like, oh, no, 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 we get through all this and then this happens and we still have stories and we still have dramas and people still fall in love and have wars and travel all over the place. And I find that just wonderfully optimistic, even though the books themselves are often quite bleak, but just the idea that, oh, no, there's still, there's still people. People are still there. And, and we're, we're not quite the monsters that we are, perhaps, right now. 
Yeah, I do think there is a deep optimism in science fiction. Yeah. And I have a friend who's a musician, and when he travels to um, play at festivals, he loves to read science fiction while he's on the road. And I think it's something about the wonder and the, just the mind-blowing difference that works mm. for him when he's away. Yeah. yeah, comfort comes in many different shapes and forms. Maybe we can do a quick round of... What's the book you've read the most or what's the book you lend to others the most? Is there something that you find yourself sharing? Is there that book that you buy multiple copies of so that you can give it to others? Do you have one of those books? The book I've read the most is Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I've been reading it every five years or so since I was 11. Um, and I read it most recently for uh, when I was writing Understory because um, I had this sense that Lord of the Rings was actually all about trees. And um, I thought about doing a PhD on this, but, you know, I don't need to do that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is. Uh, the trees sort of change the tide of history at every critical point in Lord of the Rings. It's not a beautiful book to read when I say go back to it now. Um, but that, uh, that idea of making up a whole world still excites my imagination, you know, reignites my imagination. Probably more than any other book, that's why I'm a writer. Mm. You know, at that point in my childhood, reading that book and having the world open up in that way, um, it almost is a real world to me, a place where I go for comfort. Um, yeah, the book I uh, give or lend most often is a book, I think it's Richard, maybe, I'm so bad on first names, called The Nature Cure but you just quietly slip to someone when they're going through a hard time without saying, this will yeah. help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, for me, I, one of my favourite writers is um, Stephanie Dickinson. She's an American writer and um, she's just not well known at all. So I, I, I'm always giving her books to friends and being like, she's so good, read her, <laughs> and trying to get other people to like her and spread the word a bit. Um, and she writes poetry, she writes short stories, she's written novels. Um, her first novel was actually kind of autobiographical. And yeah, I, I have all her books and I, I want everyone to read all of them so I can talk about them. And yeah. Does anyone give you feedback? Like, you were right, she's a genius. I haven't had anyone like them as much as I do. Oh, like, that's yeah. so hard, isn't it? Yeah, like I, I have had people say, oh, I liked it, but not to the extent that I have. Oh, so, yeah. Disappointing. Sometimes comfort reading can be a lonely place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, giving, book, giving books is fraud. I'm right, you know, thinking about this of kind of, you know, making mixtapes for people back when I was sort of 17 and give it to a chick you like and she's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, um, but I do, like, I love, and another book that I sort of really love and reread a lot is Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson, which mm -hmm. is a story, a short story collection, sort of loosely intellectual stories. It was actually a really good film. It was a weirdly, good film. Weirdly, yeah, it seems yeah. unfilmable. But um, just really, really beautiful. And I actually had the experience of a friend of mine, a very long friend, a long-term friend, I've known him for like 35 years, he borrowed it, and I said, what do you think? He's like, yeah, it's okay. And I was, I was literally thinking, I can't be friends with you anymore. If you don't like Jesus' son, there's something wrong with you, you know. Um, <laughs> like, it's just, I, yeah, it, it's one of those books that sort of um, kind of makes me slightly weepy, not only because of the content, but and, and that's sort of neither here nor there, but just because of its sheer 
something about the energy and perfection of it. I think it's almost a perfect book, you know. Um, and, you know, the secret history I have pressed on a few people, actually, as well, weirdly. I always assume when I give somebody a book that they're going to put it on their shelf and not read it. In the same way that every time that I've forced people to listen to After Murder Park by the Auteurs or Tallahassee by the Mountain Goats, and people have gone like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. And I've gone, you're wrong. <laughs> and you're a bad person. The book that I've read the most by a fairly long chalk and certainly the one that I give to people because it's a book that I think is easy to dismiss and I feel slightly embarrassed because it's a very popular book is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I just adore that book. It's just one of the most perfectly written things I've ever read. Um, and it's, it's such a good concept, which I think the, the television adaptation is getting largely wrong. Like, it, it's, it, it sort of takes it in a different direction, which is interesting, but nowhere near, I, I, for, my, for my money, nowhere near as satisfying as the, as the book. And it's just that there are bits of it that, that make me cry every time I read it. And there's the fact that there is an entire middle section that is essentially its own book. And I've never seen that done well by anybody else. Like, like even reading something very discursive like Moby Dick, I, I still get frustrated of, like, sort of, you know, bring on the whale! But the... Um, <laughs> The but world's it, always there. Eh? But you can <laughs> the have, world's inside yeah. all of us. We are the whale. But you can have that interlude that can stand alone. Yeah, yeah. and, so, and yeah. The, the, just, again, the rhythm of the book is so, is so expertly constructed. And I love the fact, against on, with music, one of my favourite artists is, is the Magnetic Fields, who's a guy called Stephen Merritt. And he wrote, uh, he did an album called 69 Love Songs, which is exactly what it says on the, on the title. And that was what Gaiman was listening to obsessively while he was writing the book. And, and you can, again, you can sort of feel the same rhythms as the, as the album and the same sort of diversity as, as the album. And it's, um, it's still an amazing book. I, I want to read it right now. I did hope that we would have time to talk about music that you listen to while you're reading something and how that can just you know, catch it like an amber, you know, in time. But we are actually out of time, so we're going to have to save our musical discussion for after the panel. We do have ten minutes for questions. Would anyone like to ask any of our authors questions about their work or reading? Um, or would anyone like to share their own comfort reading? We're happy to bring up the lights and hand out a microphone if anyone has any thoughts. Hi, Jen and Laura. My favourite books for comfort reading are also Marilyn Robinson's Gilead Trilogy and Middlemarch oh, okay. because I love books about people who are trying to be good in the world. Um, is there anything else along those lines either of you would recommend? I mean, they're the best ones, so if you can't come up with anything, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, it's, like, not my typical reading, so that's why it stood out to me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I really like Iris Murdoch, but I think she's completely different from Marilyn Robinson. But, all, like, her characters often are not very good, but they are trying to be good or they think they're good, and <laughs> they just amuse me. I, I find Iris Murdoch really fun. I read a novel this year 
it's a no first novel by a woman called Emily Ruskovich, Idaho, and it was a deeply troubling read, but also incredibly comforting because the people in that book have had very bad things happen to them. One particular incident in the book is very bad, but is the whole book is about trauma and memory, and um, it circles around this incident. But the people are trying to be good, and the thing that happens is terrible. And so I did find that. It, I read it in a day, and I can't wait to read it again. But it's not what I would expect to enjoy. Have you read Elmet? No. I've heard yeah, I can't think of the author's name. I was hoping you'd be able to record mm, No, it. we'll have to Google that one. Um, a book yeah. called Elmet has some similar themes, okay. but yeah. it's also really um, beautiful writing, mm. uh, really gently handled. Yeah. And I have to say, I did love Extinctions by Josephine Wilson as well. I just love the idea of this elderly couple that have just met kind of hijacking modernist furniture and going on the lamb. And I, I like the idea of people being able to do what they want and try and seek a better life. Yeah. I suppose every crime book falls into this category, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. Redemption. Yeah, the good yeah. cop trying, you know, trying to stop the tide of corruption. Mm. Yeah. Although they're often deeply flawed characters, but that... Oh, they're loose cannons who play by their yeah. own rules, but damn it, they get results. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering how many of you have, have read David Mitchell. I find that um, I like his books because, A, they're all, they're all different, but also they're a world... They deal with a world that I've, is outside my experience while still being sort of centred in, in our times, well, except for the historical ones, sorry... <laughs> I'm just wondering if how many of you have enjoyed his works. He'd be up your alley, I think. I, 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 I'm embarrassed to say I have not. That Cloud Atlas, Cloud Atlas yeah. was one of the books I thought of when um, Andrew mentioned a book that has a standalone section in the middle that works. Right, there we go. I, I, yeah. I will, I'm going to take this on yeah. board. Ghostwritten is lovely. I really enjoyed Ghostwritten, which also has senior citizens off on the land. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's good. They are also trying to be good and have fun lives. Yeah. I, I haven't read him, unfortunately. Me either. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I left a couple of David Mitchell books in the barrel outside yesterday, so if anyone wants to read some David Mitchell, there might still be some there. Black Swan Green is one I gave to my father to read. He's not a big fiction reader and he loved it because it's set in a Welsh border town um, during the... Um, like historical blank. Um, can anyone help me with the war that England fought in the 1980s? The Falklands. Oh. Sorry, I'm too young. What a war. <laughs> oh, it's not really a question, but um, this year I read a book called Educated. I think I was just trying to look up the author, but I can't Ta remember. Tara Westover. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an incredibly inspiring book simply because, I guess, the continuation of human spirit to actually come from a place where you've not been educated, where you've been, you know, subject to sexism, you're kept down and told you're a bad person, you're no good, mm -hmm. and to then step from being, you know, never being, having been to school to go to college to get a PhD was just an amazing mm. book. Mm. And to then think she stepped away from family. and But it was very inspiring to think that you, you can come from anywhere and be anything you want. And particularly in this age when people want to be victims, I think it's, it's great. It was a great book.
Yeah, memoirs can be great. Does anyone have a favourite memoir that's particularly comforting? I hate memoirs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah. No, Joan I don't. Didion. Joan yeah. Didion. Why you imagine the thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't get to talk about grief. Well, like, I hope that we'd be able to talk about grief, but we... I, I do like memoirs, but I'm drawing a blank right now, mm. unfortunately. Oh, I liked um, Maxine Benedict-Clark's The Hate Race. That was really great. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank right now. But I, I, I really do want to read Tara's book because I saw her speak at Sydney Writers Festival. And, yeah, it was just like her story was so interesting. Andrew, that beautiful piece that you read to your son, that's just beautiful. But at the same time, when you're doing political commenting and, you know, we talked about, you know, you mentioned the satire, satirist, James Collier. Um, Is there a conflict then sometimes when you're doing that with the thought of being kind and kindness in the world? Uh, Yes, (laughs) is is the short answer. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think that there... I, I, I think that there is a distinction between making fun of what somebody says and does and making fun of who they are. And, um, and I feel, particularly with politics, point, pointing out the hypocr- hypocrisy or, or inconsistency or just barefaced lying is completely reasonable, whereas mocking somebody's appearance or the way that they speak or, you know, whether or not they've been well-educated and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's lazy and it's cruel. Which is why, again, you know, to, to sort of go back to Barnaby, there are so many things about him you can criticise, but, you know, making, making fun of him for, you know, going red in Parliament, I mean, you know, that's just... He's a human being, stuff happens to him. Making stuff up and just lying about his uh, travel entitlement, that's completely fine. Because, uh, you know, people do need to be held to account and I feel that satire, when it's done well, holds people to account in a way that um, I think has more impact and more longevity than just going... just straight reportage. And Um, then it makes it not about hate. Yeah, it's... at, At the risk of getting very highfalutin about it, you would hope that... You're, you're encouraging people to be better. But bullying people into being better, I realise, is, is perhaps not the kindest way of doing anything. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> and we do hope that in your reading you will meet characters that strive for betterness and that we, we hope that you find solace and you find comfort in all your reading. Thank you, Andrew, Chris. Laura and Inga, it's been a really great morning. As I've been talking and listening, I've thought of so many books that I remember are on my comfort shelf and I'm sure that all of you as well will be thinking deeply about what you love to read. I hope you keep talking about it for the rest of the day and we'll see you soon. Thank you, everyone. So, Kel, what do you think? Do you have any comfort books? Mm, you know what I found really interesting about that was actually listening to them talk about a lot of the authors reference their comfort books were from childhood and when I was listening to it thinking about it 
most of my comfort books actually also come from childhood. That was the time when I had my own little shelf of books that I would always go to that helped me if I was anxious or worried or feeling a bit lost or needed comfort. What are they? Tell us. Well, one, honestly, it was the Babysitter's Club series. That was a massive comfort. Yeah, huge, huge. Um, (laughs) I loved it. I read every single one of them until I got too old. And also Forever by Judy Bloom was another massive one, which at the time I remembered that book was banned, so it may be really popular to have that book for a while. And also uh, Del Del by Victor Kelleher, which is a really dark book, um, but it's a book that I must have read 20 times over. It's such a good book. Mm. They're, they're my comfort books from childhood, I'd say. Haven't read any, haven't read any of those. You haven't? Yeah. You should. <laughs> so what are your comfort books, Pam? Because you did say that you've got some and that you didn't think you had them either. So what are they? Yeah, look, I, I think I tend to go more for poetry when I'm feeling a little bit, you know, like in need of solace. I, um, I go back and read uh, Mary Oliver. I love Mary Oliver's poetry. She's my absolute all-time favourite. So beautiful and simplistic on the surface but not simplistic if you know what I mean Mm. um Billy Collins love his poetry yeah I often just pick up a book of poetry from my shelf and if it's if it's a writing related issue making me feel down I tend to go for um I tend to go for either Natalie Goldberg or um Julia Cameron or Liz Gilbert Big Magic and Lamotte as well um sort of all about the philosophy of writing and the you know why we write and things like that and that's something that you know I often need (laughs) to remember Remind myself about. Yeah. Yeah, sort of more the spiritual side of writing, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. Actually, it's funny. I do have one comfort reading author in adulthood because I don't really, That's I was saying it to you before, um, before we recorded this, I don't really have a lot of comfort reading books in adulthood because you don't have time, especially when you've got kids, like you were saying. So when you get the chance to read a book, you want to pick one that you've been dying to read and you haven't read yet. Yeah. But there is one person I will always go back to and it's Carl Hyacin and his books because they always make me laugh my ass off and um, they make me feel happy. Oh. So he's my comfort reader as an adult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good to ha- good to have a good laugh. Actually, one I one I have gone back to a number of times is Big Little Lies, uh, by Leanne Mor- Moriarty, uh, because yeah, it does make me laugh, and I also just am in awe of, of the way she wrote that book. Um, and the other one I've read it a few times, for, like you, for a laugh, Bridget Jones' Diary. Ah, you said I've never got into it, the film mm. or the books. I oh, loved it. Oh, ab- my top ten films. Absolutely <laughs> love all three of them. <laughs> You love all the Jane Austen, though, as well, though, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do. So it's a good riff off that, but it's just funny. I just think she's an hysterical character. But that, that's a chat for another day. Yes, it is. The pros and cons of, of Bridget Jones <laughs> and Jane Austen. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's been a wonderful session. I hope that all of our listeners out there are thinking about their comfort books, have got some great suggestions to go out to the library or their local bookshop and pick up. Yep, I'm sure they are, Kel, who can't find solace in books. I think we forget sometimes. It's easy to turn on Netflix, but I think books, you can really crawl, crawl into a book. You can't do that the same way with a TV show. Mm. Mm. It's like between agree. you and the book. It's different. 
Yeah. yeah. And obviously, if you want to find more out about the Mudgy um, Readers Festival, go to www.mudgyreaders.com and you can also find them at Facebook at Mudgy Readers and you can find us at all of our podcasts, including Rights for Festivals, Rights for Women, everything to do with Pam and I um, and Room to Read on www.rightsforwomen.com and where are we sitting on social and where can we find you, Pam? Okay, social, you can find us on Instagram at W4W Podcast, same on Twitter, and I'm at www.pamelacook.com.au. Yay. So thank you very much for listening to the very first episode of the Mudgy Readers Festival. I've got lots more episodes to come. I think the next one might be Kate Wilde's book, Waiting for Elijah. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I really loved listening to the, um, you know, in the recording because I didn't get to see the session. I think it'll be a great one for listeners to hear. Oh, it went to levels I didn't think it was going to go. I, I thought it was going to be about the book, but it was about so much more than that. Can't wait to bring it to you next time. I think that's it for today, Pam. And we'd also like to acknowledge the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales, which uh, helped us to get started with Rights for Festivals to set us up to cover regional writers' festivals in New South Wales. We hope you enjoy Rights for Festivals. Bye. Bye.